Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with P.W. Singer about the new book, Like Wars. P.W. co-authored this book with Emerson Brooking. P.W., welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am a researcher in political science. Uh, I have written books on topics that range from the rise of private militaries, to the rise of warlord groups and child soldiers, to a book called Wired for War about the first use of robotics on unmanned systems in conflict, then another book looking at cybersecurity and cyber war, and uh, most recently a uh, book that was a hybrid of a novel and nonfiction called Ghost Fleet uh, that looked at the future of war. I work at a organization called New America. We're basically a think tank uh, based in Washington, D.C. And I've always been drawn to these topics of what's changing out there in national security and how do we need to understand it and what are the implications of it? Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to work with your co-author and how the idea for this book came together? Sure. So the co-author on the project, the book is called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And the co-author is uh, Emerson Brooking. And he was actually originally my intern back in the day. And um, through various conversations, we were watching some of the early rise of this phenomena that we call Like War, how groups around the world were starting to use social media almost as a weapon. They were weaving it into their operations. And so we were seeing examples in places like uh, not just the rise of ISIS overall, but how it was using social media to um, help win the Battle of Mosul. To We saw it popping up in Ukraine and the like. And essentially, we realized there's something going on here. But then there was a second part of it that our world, um, not just overall, but in particular the national security community, wasn't well dealing with it. Uh, one of the things we talk about in the book was that uh, when ISIS arose, there was one study that found um, the word slick was used more than five million times to describe what ISIS was doing. We were surprised. How does this group with a you know seventh century version of the world, how is it doing all this new stuff, all this slick stuff online? And the two of us are looking at it going, they're basically doing what any millennial or any new movie or any new video game would do. You know, for example, they're launching an invasion, but they're simultaneously putting a hashtag out there. Uh, the hashtag was all eyes on ISIS. So there was not just this new phenomena, but that we weren't well understanding it, weren't well appreciating it. And then we begin to see it grow and grow and not just become used in conflicts around the world, but increasingly filtering over into politics itself. So, for example, many of the same phenomena, many of the actually same actors that we were seeing Russia use to go after, for example, Ukraine, 
uh, we start seeing them pop up going after elections in Eastern Europe, then Brexit, then the United States election. And so that's where this book comes out of, is trying to understand what's playing out on social media, where did it come from, what are its new rules, what are its new effects. You make an early reference to Clausewitz and On War. In Like War, what thread are you following about some of those arguments about war and politics? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting for the book, uh, the way we went around researching it uh, blended all sorts of different methodologies. So we brought together, um, you know, classic what we would describe as references, you know, uh, studied fields that ranged from uh, the history of war to the history of communications to uh sociology to new realms and internet psychology. Uh, You know, it's for a topic where there's a lot of um, problems of what you might think of as fake news. We wanted to really go after that. Uh, The book actually has, um, don't hold me to this number. I believe it's uh, well over 1100 references in it to various kind of the latest in academic studies, but also big data studies. Um, But Second, and then we also did tracking, you know, as I mentioned, of um, dozens of conflicts and quasi-conflicts around the world, uh, elections, how is social media being used in that? But then, more pertinent to your question, we also interviewed all sorts of um, people uh, that were key in this, and they ranged from um, recruiters uh, for extremist groups to tech company executives uh, to um, reality stars to uh, even um, General Michael Flynn, who has um, since uh, become uh, famous or infamous. Um, But there was, you know, one person whose insights we kept coming back to who we couldn't interview. And that was the guy, Clausewitz, who, you know, well over two centuries ago, Uh, wrote about how war and politics were together along this continuum, and many of his insights hold all the more true in a world where everything and everyone is connected. And, uh, you know, you can see this, um, a lot of the concepts that, you know, Clausewitz talks about, you know, that are now famous, the fog of war, friction, but particularly he had um, this, this core lesson that war is politics by other means. And uh, we see this playing out in the conflicts, the wars on the networks that then affect the wars and conflicts and politics in the real world. Uh, and you see it in everything from the lessons that he talked about, about how there's always a back and forth, there's two sides that creates the inherent friction, but also the learning. So one of the things that the book explores is how you had these um, early first movers uh, who were able um, to, in essence, they either naturally came to the lessons of what worked in in this conflict or they they designed themselves around it. Uh, And that ranges from Donald Trump and his political campaign to, as mentioned, ISIS to, you know, one of the other episodes looks at uh, gangs in Chicago uh, to another, uh, you know, fun one looks at um, Taylor Swift. Uh, but you know, have, you have these early movers, but everyone's learning from each other. And so now we're beginning to see more and more of kind of the contestation back and forth of people using these core lessons. 
So, you know, you can get a lot of the insights from a Clausewitz, but then there's other aspects of it that, you know, he would never be able to wrap his head around. And I should actually do a a quick aside. You know, we talk about this in the book. Um, One of the important things to remember about Clausewitz is it's not just him. It's also his wife. Uh, So uh, Carl, in many ways, kind of parallel to us um, in the 1800s, goes out and uh, does a version of interviewing all the great thinkers of the day about war. He writes letters to them across Europe. He brings it together, but his writing is really opaque and it's in lots of different essays. And then he dies. And then it's his wife, Marie, who actually brings it all together um, in the in the book on war. So Marie often doesn't get the credit for her role. So in many ways, we should, you know, when we say Clausewitz, we should say the Clausewitzes. Um, but one thing, to, you know, to go back to the story, one thing that they never would have been able to wrap their head around is um, while they talk about the lessons of how terrain is so important to conflict, the terrain in this space is something that would have been unimaginable in the 19th century, most of the 20th century. And, and frankly, it's really hard for a lot of people in the 21st century to wrap their heads around how social networks w- work and the rules that drive them, the algorithms, the attention economy and the like, and the fact that they're owned and operated by for-profit businesses created by a handful of tech geeks. And so the rules of this battlefield, the laws of war, so to speak, are decided by essentially a handful of people sitting in Silicon Valley. So you, when you're looking at like war, it's a, um, the terminology is a bit of an homage uh, to them. Um, it's also what the competing tribes of you know everything from Kanye West and Taylor Swift fans they talk about engaging in like wars to ISIS fans and U.S. military coalition fans also talk about the same. But what I'm getting at is there's some parts of it that you know have the essential rules of war that have held true throughout all of humanity. And then we have other new parts of it that um, were once inconceivable, but we all have to figure out because guess what? We're all part of this conflict too, if we're all online. And the book spends some time talking about the history of the internet and how it works, as well as the emergence of these different social media platforms. And you make the point that the modern information environment is becoming stable, what does that mean and why is that stability important and how is that relative to the history that you cover in the book? Yeah, and, and this may be a point that um, I don't think enough of us either appreciate. And some people might, you know, frankly, be willing to argue with it. And we can go back and forth on it. But essentially, when you look at the history of the Internet, you saw this um, massive growth, global growth, but also organizational growth, corporate growth. And then you saw um, this rapid churn and turnover. Um, and, you know, look, think about the uh, networks that you might have once been on. Um, you know, we look at the history of social media and you had, you know, everything from um, Six Degrees to Friendster to MySpace and they're popping up. And then, frankly, they're, they're disappearing after a couple of years. Our argument is we've actually hit the next stage of it. And um, like them or not, the Facebooks of the world, um, the Googles, uh, they're, they're now here to stay for a long period of time. 
um, you're not going to see that kind of rapid turnover over the next couple of years. And there's a variety of reasons for why that's happened on the corporate side. Um, you have these sort of titans of industry. And, and in many ways, you can think about the parallels in other communication platforms back in the, the say, the 1800s and the early 1900s. And there's a big debate that people are having about what is the meaning of these um, kind of quasi-monopolies, uh, oligopolies, or the like. So you have that on the corporate side, the networks themselves. And even when we see new things pop up, the Instagrams, the like, they're quickly brought into that network. So, you know, it's all part of, uh, that would be an example of something that's part of Facebook. Um, and so both the uh, platforms, the organizations, uh, are come somewhat here to stay. It also means many of the most important players, voices um, online, who are also, frankly, what the studies call um, super spreaders. Uh, they're the people with the most followers who are able to steer the most online conversation. Uh, they're here to stay, again, for better or for worse. Uh, so, you know, whatever um, large number uh, person online, and, you know, the prime example of this would be uh, real, uh, real Donald Trump, uh, they you're not going to see them, um, their follower count go down over the next couple of years. You're also, it's going to be very difficult for new voices to rise to have that same kind of follower count. There's a little bit of a first mover advantage. So these super spreaders are uh, only going to continue to have their kind of influence. And the notion of a super spreader actually comes from um, outside the internet. It comes from when we look at studies of virality uh, in the biosciences. When you look at how, for example, disease spreads, um, things like uh, the flu, uh, they, all the studies find that there's a small number of people that are the really key drivers of it. So, you know, for example, there was a look at a outbreak of, um, uh, more dangerous forms of the flu in Asia a couple of years ago. And in one study in, um, South Korea, they found, uh, you know, among the thousands of people, there was like one guy who spread well over 40% of it. He was just the super spreader kind of connecting to everyone. So what we're getting at is the platforms, the people, but also to go back to what I was talking about with Clausewitz, the lessons of how to do it, the sort of rules of the game, the, the best practices, so to speak, they're also proliferating. And so what we're getting to is that the Internet, you know, you almost might think of it as like a parallel. I'm, I'm the father of kids. Um, they're reaching that point of um, whether we're talking about the companies themselves uh, or the dynamics of it. It's kind of reaching adolescence. Um, it's, it's grown and grown, but now it's kind of, um, coming to grips with its own power, uh, and its own kind of responsibility. And you can see this, for example, within the creators of these companies and how, again, for better and definitely for worse, they've played uh, a role in shaping our war and politics and what they allow or not as they kind of themselves even individually mature, but also their kingdoms that they run that are simultaneously companies that are simultaneously battle spaces, um, they begin to mature and lock in and what they allow or not online. Um, so it's, it's a really you know different way of putting it is um, the dynamics that are playing out right now, we're going to be stuck with them for the time being.
Uh, and um, that means, again, we need to better understand them, react to them, and that better understand, react to them uh, extends across everything from governments to the business to you and I individually to those of us who want to study these things. And I'll just reiterate, too, I think that knowing the history of kind of where some of these platforms came from, it's it's really interesting. And it's also helpful that it's all in one place here. So I think this may be a, a useful reference for people understanding kind of where where did YouTube come from? And how did Twitter get where it is? Um, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I think, there, you know, there's three things to, to spin out from that. The first is, isn't it crazy how um, we use the internet you know, literally every day, some of us almost every hour, uh, actually a percentage of us um, technically every minute because we're not offline. Um, and yet we don't well know the story of its origin uh, the way we know, you know, other technologies, Ben Franklin, uh, you know, Thomas Edison. Um, but, you know, most people don't know the story of the early Internet creators uh, and they're fun stories. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're interesting. You know, the story of, uh, you know, the very first social network and how it came out of uh, people, you know, wanting to talk about appropriately enough science fiction to uh, where the first emoticon came from. And then you get the um, second part of it, uh, which is this idea of um, how it connects back to the issues of today and the role of these companies you know, the creators of these spaces that we use for fun um, to post our you know, vacation videos that we use to date, that we use for commerce, but also that groups that range from ISIS to Russia to Chicago gangs used to, you know, fight their wars. They where did they come from? And the you know, reality is they came from, uh, you know, Facebook comes from a young Mark Zuckerberg uh, writing a program that allows um, his fellow students to rate whether they are hot or not. Um, and then, you know, he's now running uh, in some ways it's, you know, you can buy a number. It's the most populous nation in the world. If you think about the citizens of Facebook, so to speak, but more importantly, what he allows or not on that platform can determine the outcomes of elections. Um, it can determine the outcomes of battles. It can determine the outcomes of whether a genocide is spurred on or not. It can determine um, the outcome of uh, whether terrorist attacks are sparked or broadcast out to the world. And none of these are a um, made up example. You know, we talk about them in the book. So it's this, you know, strange disconnect of, of where they come from and what that all means. Uh, so it's a, again, I think it's, it's really fascinating, but it's important for all of us to know that history. Speaking of history, you cite some examples of how different technology has disrupted military campaigns in the past, and you you use it as a point of comparison, sometimes looking at tactical advancements, but often communications has been a key factor. How is social media similar to previous technological changes, and how is it different? I think that's a really fascinating area, and that was, um, you know, frankly, I'm I'm a bit of a history buff, like, and so this seems like we're talking about you know high technology and and the future, but um, I, I love the history side, and there's many remarkable parallels to uh, how there were changes in the past and their their impact. A, a good example would be 
the telegraph uh, that allows uh, suddenly people from long distances to link together, creates the first proto networks. Um, and then, of course, you get, you know, the fun side story. So, uh, you know, an example, when you think about the parallel of the Internet and the telegraph, the important role of government, there was actually a um, debate in Congress on whether to fund the first telegraph line and the alternative was um, to do a study on uh, essentially mind control, uh, <laughs> telepathy. So you know, it was either to do, uh, can we communicate um, you know, via telepathy or via this strange idea of connecting wires and electricity? And fortunately, they funded the telegraph one instead. Um, but you know, very soon, the telegraph, as you know, changes the uh, story of um, war. It's changes the tactics. Um, you know, you think about during the American Civil War, uh, I believe it's well over 15,000 miles of telegraph line are brought together and it allows military units and operations to connect in different ways and move more rapidly, et cetera, et cetera, changes their supply chain. It changes the way um, commanders control, but also connects it back to the politicians in fundamentally new ways. Uh, you know, everything from very early on in the telegraph, suddenly um, politicians and generals sitting in London are sending battle orders to Crimea uh, during the Crimean War that's in Russia, thousands of miles away. Um, very quickly, uh, Abraham Lincoln is getting uh, same, not just same day, but um, same hour, same minute battle reports. Um, it connects the public in fundamentally new ways, uh, where the public is hearing about the outcomes of battles and it's providing feedback to those politicians in a more rapid manner. Um, it very soon leads to the rise of um, what we now call uh, fake news, war reporting. Uh, in fact, during the War of 1898, um, you have newspapers that change their byline to talk about how they aren't providing, uh, you know, say, no fake news. Um, one of the St. Louis uh, newspapers has that. So you get this kind of massive change. Also, oh, by the way, um, you get the role of these early tycoons and maybe their play in um, sparking wars. Uh, you think about, um, you know, the stories of, uh, you know, sending reporters to Cuba and saying, you know, I'll provide you the war. Um, and so you see many of these same things playing out with social media just um, now brought into instant form. But then importantly, it's unleashed in a manner that the telegraph um, isn't because we can bring it with us anywhere. And each of us is now our own reporter, editor, publisher. Uh, so each of us has that power. And so, you know, you can see this in everything from um, it's, it's broken up the role of the war correspondent. Um, you know, you have uh, every... Uh, in anywhere there's a battle, there is a civilian that's now taking photos, talking about it. Um, that's changed, uh, you know, not just rural reporting, but the very nature of secrecy itself. Uh, one of the examples in the book is the bin Laden raid, supposed to be the most secretive military operation uh, in, you know, recent history. 
And, um, you know, the Navy SEAL team isn't even told the final target until the helicopter takes off. And yet uh, a um, Pakistani cafe owner in Abbottabad is up late at night. Uh, he hears helicopters coming in and he does the new natural thing. Um, he goes online to complain about it. So he's sharing the news and complaining and his um, tweets act as um, live battle reports. Um, so it's changed kind of the nature of re reporting and secrecy. Um, it's also changed the nature of politics, maybe not the nature, but it's um, certainly shook up politics. And, you know, the great example of this would be Donald Trump, who very proudly uh, talks about how his Twitter feed is his own newspaper uh, edited by the, you know, in his, his description, the perfect editor, and that it has allowed him to sidestep um, uh, other uh, mechanisms, other measures, other media channels. And it also, his mastery of it, uh, allowed him to uh, rise to power, defeat his rivals, first in the Republican nomination and then Hillary Clinton in a way that previously wouldn't have been possible. Um, so there's lots of this different um, shakeup that's out there. Uh, and again, it's going to be with us for the long term. So just like how the telegraph changed um, the kinds of politicians that arose, there's no Abraham Lincoln without the telegraph. The telegraph is the key to bringing him notoriety from the Lincoln-Douglas debates to how um, television uh, creates the need for telegenic politicians. Now, skill set in social media is changing um, that set again. And, you know, Trump is only the first of many to come. And I guess when you talk about some failed propaganda attempts in the past, such as radio shows and leaflets that didn't really get a lot of traction, you, you point out that social media, it is different and it is a lot more effective. Uh, why is that? And do you see social media as more of a tactical weapon in war than other communications uh, channels? It is a battle space where information can be weaponized. And because of its ability um, to be widely proliferated uh, in everyone's hands, so to speak, and its global aspect of it, and that, um, you know, unlike, say, the telegraph or um, even a, a TV camera, uh, you can be a fighter in these wars thousands of miles away. Uh, you, it, it, it provides a kind of new freedom, but also new power. And when I say a fighter in these wars, um, the role that might be played might be anything from a... Um, uh, intelligence analyst, uh, a new form of that. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is these, um, people who, uh, investigate war crimes from afar. Uh, one of the gentlemen that we interviewed, you know, is a great story where, uh, he lives in North Carolina. Um, and yet he scans social media to help document, um, war crimes committed by Russia and places like Ukraine and Syria. Uh, finding little tidbits that are popping up and piecing them together. You can think of him as almost like a work from home Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, the great twist of it is that um, his, his in-laws 
uh, think he's just kind of fooling around on the computer, and yet he's become this core player in you know important stories of not just human rights but geopolitics today. Um, you have that kind of analytic side. Uh, you might be a participant through some kind of crowdsourcing, and this can be both um, funding someone from afar uh, to a darker version of that. Um, so if you have the good side of, you know, war crimes reporters from afar, there's a bad side story of, um, a Iraqi militia that, uh, posted to the world images of a POW and said, in effect, world, tell us what to do with them. Um, people from around the world, including the United States, uh, voted and determined the POW's fate. And then two hours later, uh, the militia posted a, um, selfie with the body in the background, dark version of this. Um, your participation might be uh, through helping to drive that message viral. Uh, so just simply what you choose to watch or not, what you choose to thumbs up or not, will help determine whose side of the conflict is the one that wins out in the global narrative. And then that will actually have impact on the battlefield operations themselves. Uh, you can see this everywhere from ISIS in the Battle of Mosul uh, to the back and forth between Israel and Palestine, where the, the, the world's uh, views actually has real effect on everything from battlefield tactics. Uh, for example, the IDF, um, the Israeli Defense Forces, are uh, tracking what's winning out online or not, and then they're reshaping their air campaign around that. To um, in uh, Battle of Mosul, uh, ISIS's message is the one that trends, so to speak, and it's the one, therefore, that's filling the smartphones of Iraqi soldiers. And so when ISIS says it's winning, it actually looks like it's winning, and then it really does win. The Iraqi soldiers uh, run away, and you have this, this strange story where an invasion force of around 2,500 routes a defending force of around 20,000 that's supported by the world's most powerful military. And yet, because of the online side, it's able to crack that. Um, and so I could kind of go on and on about this globalization in a manner that um, makes it, it different than before. So, you know, so much of this, you see threads in history, but we also see new twists and turns on it. And then there's a, a final part of this, again, you know, to go back to what we we're talking about of Clausewitz, there's the melding of um, politics and um, warfare. So um, Russia's disinformation campaigns. Uh, it is the social media, the internet has allowed a reach into other nations' politics in a way that wasn't possible before. So to give like a comparison, uh, at the start of World War I, um, one of the most important moments of it that we talk about in the book is when um, this trawler uh, basically takes a hook and pulls up uh, a couple of um, wires at the bottom of the ocean and snips them. And from that point on, Germany couldn't connect to the United States. It couldn't provide, these were telegraph lines. And so uh, Great Britain owns, in effect, the narrative of the war. And the United States uh, basically goes from um, thinking uh, about staying out of the war 
to several years later joining the war. Um, today, you can't do that. You can't snip the wire that way. And so you can reach into other nations' politics um, and you can, um, in effect, uh, sometimes even use information warfare techniques to exploit them. And that's really what we saw with the Russian campaign, where in many ways it's this kind of combination of information warfare, but also the export of censorship and into other nations. And it was incredibly effective. So you see Russian military units affecting the domestic politics and democratic discourse in other nations. Um, and of course, everyone else looked at that and said, huh, that worked for them. We can do that too. So you and I are talking in, um, late September, uh, 2018 and many of the very same dynamics that played out in the 2016 election were continuing to see today. Uh, and it, it's things in our own politics. Uh, so for example, we've seen evidence of Russian disinformation activities, uh, kind of this divide and um, conquer, uh, spread distrust on the topics that range from uh, the Charlottesville protests to um, the NFL uh, anthem controversy. But we've also seen it pop up um, in other nations' elections, uh, Macedonia to Mexico. The recent Mexican election, uh, about one third of the online conversation about it was generated by um, artificial voices, uh, trolls and bots, which sadly is almost the exact same percentage of what happened during Brexit. And meaning that, you know, it's still out there and we've not gotten better uh, at dealing with it. On that point, you say in the book that information literacy is now a national security imperative. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This is a space where we are all customers. We are all citizens. We are all now targets and kind of combatants. Uh, if you are online, and um, most of us are, and definitely most of our kids are online, and uh, we are using it, again, for everything from uh, dating to buying to um, getting our news. Uh, so we're part of this. Um, and unfortunately, we're not all that well equipped for it. Uh, and when I say we, um, it's everything from uh, understanding just the basics of um, how this uh, you know, battle space slash economy works. The majority of Americans don't know how social media companies make their money. We know how uh, you know TV uh, channels make their money. They sell commercials. Most of us know that, but most of us don't understand uh, the system here. And you know, maybe some of your listeners are saying, "Well, I do." Well, you may, but uh, your um, uncle or aunt or your fourteen-year-old uh, kid. Uh, and importantly, they have a real challenge in figuring out um, when something is an ad, when something is a real news report. Uh, when something is a um, authentic voice, when it's not an authentic voice. And again, that's important because you're being targeted both for commerce, but also as part of these conflicts, including, you know, to try and um, uh, cause you to act in a very different way, whether to buy something, whether to vote differently, uh, turn up at a protest or not, you name it. 
So um, we have this this problem set, and we can kind of go on and on about it. Um, and um, my belief is, you know, frankly, we we need to learn more um, and be better equipped at this. And re what's really fascinating, again, is when you look at the um, studies on this, uh, your intelligence level, being smart or not. Oh, but I'm smart. I don't have to worry about this. Sorry, the studies show that that's not a inoculator against um, being taken in by uh, fake news um, or the like. Uh, there's, you know, essentially, you know, very basic uh, techniques um, in uh, discerning it that, that most of us don't do. Um, and, you know, you're no matter how smart you are, it's still being taken in. Another way of thinking about this is you, know, you can kind of think of the parallel of um, a card game. If you uh, sit down at the poker table and you don't know who the sucker is, you're the mark. And there's a little bit of that going on um, in the social media space. But the national security side of it is so crucial because, again, it's something that uh, is targeting us um, in a realm that's going after our core democracy. And what's fascinating is that the United States, which you know most of the, the listeners of this podcast are from, we were the creator of the Internet. But we are now the example that the rest of the world uses of what not to do. We're the victim that everyone wants to avoid becoming. You know, so, for example, uh, when Sweden's saying, how do we deal with this? They're, they're openly saying, look at what happened to the United States. Let's do everything different. And so you can look at these models of what other nations have done to better protect themselves at a national level all the way down to the individual level. Uh, and again, it ranges from you know, government work down to digital literacy campaigns. And much like in any other kind of um, literacy, uh, you know, whether it's actual literacy, teaching how to read, to um, public health lit literacy, uh, hygiene, it's a role that crosses from you know, government does it, school does it companies weigh in, but also parents um, and citizens weigh in. But to go back to it, you have all these, these models from other nations that we can implement. One of the strangest parts of this, though, is that in some cases, the U.S. government has actually funded some of these digital literacy campaigns for other nations. So, for example, we're paying millions of dollars to help Ukrainian students and citizens better discern Russian disinformation operations and figure out what is real or not news online. And we're not doing it for our kids enough. Isn't that strange? Well, you mentioned in the book that you actually became the the target of a troll. Can you, can you tell us what happened with that? Oh, I mean, we, we've had a lot of different um, examples of that. I mean, anyone online has become a target of a troll definitively. Uh, what we did in the book um, was uh, set, try and troll the trolls, <laughs> uh, set, you know, honeypots um, and post things. Um, honeypot, you know, if, if you're a, a, a fan of, you know, espionage, James Bond uh, books or movies, you know, honeypot is the, is the, the sexy agent that, um, you know, draws them out. Uh, and there's, of course, real world versions of this, you know, so in, in James Bond, it was Vesper Lind in the real world. It was in quotation marks, Anna Chapman. Uh, she was the, um, the first of many actually redheaded. Um, now we know Russian, uh, agents that came to the United States, 
uh, Anna Chapman was the one who was caught by the FBI and then sent back um, to Russia, where appropriately enough to the topic, she's now become um, a uh, both um, she was celebrated by Vladimir Putin and she's done Facebook lingerie modeling. <laughs> what a world we're in. Um, uh, you so. This idea of a, of a honeypot, what we did online is post things that we knew would potentially draw out trolls and sort of lead them to reveal themselves. So, for example, we posted things uh, related to the uh, shootdown of the airliner over Ukraine. Um, and then, you know, without any action on our part, suddenly uh, being targeted by um, people who want to tell us the truth of what really happened. No, Russia had nothing to do with this, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can backtrack and see their activities. Um, and, you know, that's that's one aspect of this. Then, of course, you have the other part that filters back into um, our political discourse, uh, the um, growing um, operation activity, however you want to frame it, Basically, um, the growth of some of the I would describe them as the worst people online and in the real world, uh, neo-Nazis, um, white nationalists, white supremacists, the broader group of the alt-right uh, who you know play a, a kind of um, both very real and serious and I would argue dangerous um, to our uh, democracy and our core values. But there's also this kind of game that they're playing within this space. And so we engaged in a little bit of that as well, um, baiting them to come out and see how they operate uh, and, and learning from that. It sounds like researching this book was really interesting. Um, are there any memorable interviews you could share with us? Oh, gosh. I mean, this this book was both incredibly fun um, and sometimes incredibly depressing, you know, when you think about the activities of uh, these worse people online. And, and frankly, that, um, and this is part of the problem, many of them have uh, been incentivized to do more, rewarded to do more. Uh, one of the episodes we talk about in the book is Pizzagate um, and how some of the core people behind Pizzagate uh, have, uh, you know, where Pizzagate, where, uh, you know, this weird online conspiracy theory takes off a guy is believes it shows up at a Washington DC um, pizza parlor with a gun, um, you know, scares the, the families and kids um, and the people behind it who helped spur this on. Uh, many of them have, you know, gone on to, you know, everything from uh, getting book deals to getting jobs as professional journalists to the ultimate reward of all in this space being invited to the White House, where they flashed white nationalist symbology, um, and then being re retweeted by the president itself. So you kind of have this kind of depressing side of things. And then you have the, like, the fun moments. Um, some of the most fun uh, characters, um, I would a couple jump to mind. Uh, one is the story of 
um, Farah Pandit, who is a uh, Muslim American woman who uh, had lost family members to terrorism and then has dedicated her life to countering terrorism. And first she works in the U.S. government, but then um, the more and more she, that she engages, particularly with Muslim youth around the world, she realizes I can't do this effectively enough within the U.S. government. And so she's left and now she's organizing. She's basically taking the same lessons of how groups like ISIS thrived and using it back against them. And she's building um, what she jokingly calls her Dumbledore's army. If you know your uh, Harry Potter, it's basically the teenagers who gather on their own to do the fight against evil. So she's building this online coalition of effectively teens to go after the terrorist recruiters and particularly the people that they're targeting because you know, if you're a teenager and you're being targeted, well, the U.S. government can say blah 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 blah. It's not going to be all that um, valuable. Versus another teenager weighing in and saying, "Hey, these guys are definitely not cool." Um, they're, you know, so that's a great. We found her a really powerful story. One of the more amusing stories was, um, and this is going to really uh, reveal how much of your listeners, um, you know, how deeply they are in pop culture or not. Um, Spencer Pratt. Spencer Pratt uh, was one of the first reality stars. Um, he was was a uh, on a TV show called The Hills. Um, he also produced a, a, he was both on a show. He also produced another show, which is notable because it was the show that um, brought the Kardashians into this world of celebrity and the like. And Spencer. Um, basically talked us through how you manipulate the media to get what you want. Um, and how he's one of these people that is in effect, he became, uh, quite famous, but kind of really, and as his critics would say, well, but for nothing, what did he do and the like, but he basically figured out how to work the system and he'd figured out these kind of rules of the game. And so, uh, Spencer and his wife, um, uh, Heidi, uh, and they became famous um, Spidey. They talk us through uh, how you manipulate the media and the like. And, and you know, they're doing it. Um, they, they live in California and their, their cute little dog is yapping in the background. And it's sort of silly. But then what's funny to me about it is, you know, first they have these really kind of interesting, um, you know, they're, they're, they're mixing kind of stories of celebrity with these incredible insights. But then what was fascinating is very soon after, uh, we're doing this interview with these, you know, celebrities who figured out kind of how to, how to work the system. We interviewed the U S government's, um, the person in charge of counter ISIS propaganda, and we're going to the state department and we're interviewing them. And in the midst of this, I had this kind of realization they don't get it and the celebrity does and if only the celebrity was helping to guide some of this we would be in a better place uh, and it was just sort of strange so it was both an incredibly fun interview but also you get these kind of strange insights and oh by the way you know that sounds strange and weird to say but there are people who are you know a different example you know professional um political campaigners and they feel the exact same thing right now about Donald Trump being president, that initially they looked at it and they said, you know, by all the rules of how political campaigns are supposed to work, there is no way he should win. And yet he did because the rules have changed. And so we've, you know, again, 
need to kind of understand what's going on, whether it's us as the operators in this field, us the people who study it, to us the people who are the target of all of this. PW, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, can you tell us how the book launch is going? Uh, it's been so much fun. So you and I are talking a couple weeks before the book actually comes out. It comes out on October 2nd, uh, and, you know, hopefully available in stores near people, definitely on all the different online sites where you buy books. But what's been um, incredibly fun and fascinating is that um, I've had lots of opportunities to talk about the book and its findings and lessons um, before it's even uh, been out there. Uh, so, you know, I've already briefed some of the lessons of it at places that range from um, the CIA to uh, the National Security Council uh, to um, actually just yesterday a conference where um, the head of the U.S. Navy each year hosts a conference for the heads of all the other world's navies. So it's like 100 admirals in a room. Um, and, you know, I'm able to talk about some of the lessons of the book. And that's just been uh, obviously really rewarding and fascinating. And I'm excited to see you know, what's going to happen once the book actually comes out. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks very much for having me. Like Wars by P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking is available October 2nd from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and is available for pre-order now. You can follow New Books Network on Twitter at New Books Network and the New Books Network National Security Channel at New Books Natsec. <laughs>